Each of us experience pivotal moments in our lives, moments where a new truth or a purposely forgotten truth surfaces right in front of you. Maybe it's a truth that's been displaced through distraction or a truth we've been successful at ignoring. But this truth hits us in a moment, usually an unexpected moment. But there it is, front and center, and there's no way you can ignore it. You hear your five-year-old son drop a bomb when he doesn't get his way, and you ask him, where'd you hear that word? And he says, from you, Daddy. And that truth really hurts. As your teenage daughter leaves your home with this guy you know very little about, and she says, I'll be back before midnight, you realize you're not in control all the time. I remember Zach with his newly minted driver's license, driving off to school by himself for the first time, except wasn't by himself. Jenna, our daughter, was with him. And that was, that was kind of a hard thing to take in. And it hit me that as hard as it may be, it may be time to let go a little bit more. These pivotal moments are what we'll be looking at whenever I preach the next few months. Uh, moments where someone we meet in the Bible is face-to-face with a truth. A truth each of us needs to face. And we'll get to see how they react in this pivotal moment. I went through a season early in campus ministry life here where my prayers sounded something like this. I'd be sitting in a quiet place with the campus ministry calendar on my lap or in my head. And I'd say, okay, God, here's what's up. We've got a Bible study at Hagen tonight at Tuesday, or on, Tuesday tonight, or on Tuesday night at 8. It'd be great if you could show up there. And we have this other Bible study at lunch at Ovid's on noon on Thursdays. I'd really like you to join us. And this fall advance coming up in a couple of weeks in September, it wouldn't be the same without you there. And then, and, and don't forget Wednesday night, every Wednesday night, God, we're on campus and encounter. And I'd love to know if you're coming or not. You know, and I'd, I'd list off all these events I had planned asking God to show up and anoint these events and to do his thing. It's like a staff meeting. I was getting all the players on board that needed to know. I need Ann and Jake and Sally and David there. And, oh, I better let God know he's an important person to have show up. I don't remember asking God what he wanted campus ministry to look like. I don't remember asking him what his plans might be very often. But then I didn't think I needed to. I knew what we needed to look like, but I couldn't pull it off on my own. I needed his help to pull it off. And this, this insanity went on for way too long. And then the pivotal moment hit. It's one of those moments where you come face to face with a truth you've forgotten or conveniently ignored or maybe never really knew. And this moment hit me while reading the book Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby. And Blackaby in this little section was focused on John chapter 5, where this is what we read. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. And that phrase jumped off the page at me and grabbed my heart. The son can do nothing by himself. The truth that hit me was this. I was trying to use God's power to empower my agenda. I thought I knew what things needed to look like. And if God would just come along with me, this campus ministry would be amazing. I shoved God aside and I called on him when I needed him. And I wasn't looking to see what he was doing and where he wanted me to join him. In a word, I ignored his sovereignty. 
Now that sounds crazy as I hear myself talk about this, but it really was pretty easy to do. You see, we've got plans. We have an agenda. We've thought this through. And, and that's not inherently evil. We've been around long enough to know what needs to happen. We know what should happen. We know what she needs to change. We know what he needs to fix. We know some things. And all we think we need is for God to listen to us, and then things will work out the way they're supposed to. Maybe you've felt that way. If God would just go along with your plan, life would be good. And then maybe you've been hit with a moment like I was hit with, a moment where you realize you've been shoving the sovereign God of the universe aside, inviting him to the table when you realize you can't pull this off yourself. You need his power. I mean, listen, listen to yourself. Listen to your prayers, your thoughts. Are you overlooking God's sovereignty as you focus on your agenda? This pivotal moment we're looking at today is a bit elusive. It's a little tricky to get your hands around. It has to do with realizing how great God is. I believe we're, we're talking about a sovereignty issue here. Sovereignty is not a word we throw around every day. So here's what I'm thinking of when I use this word. God encompasses everything and his plans will not be derailed. We've been created by a truly great God. Let me add this to make this a bit more clear. We don't need to trick or trap God. We just need to trust him. We need to trust his timing. A prayer we would benefit from saying with some regularity is this. God, you don't always come to us when we want you, but you are always on time. Keep that in mind as we move through Matthew 22 this morning. In the beginning of Matthew 22, Jesus hacked off the Jewish leaders because he made it very clear that they weren't the only ones invited to God's party. They couldn't deal with the thought that the Gentiles might have a place at the table, any place at the table. So they wanted to get rid of Jesus. And that's what the rest of chapter 22 is about. In verse 15, we read this line to kind of kick it off. The Pharisees went out and they laid plans to trap him in his words. Well, what are these boys thinking? Just how do you go about trapping the Son of God? It is easy to be critical of these guys, but I want us to look at this encounter with some introspection. I've, I've tried to cut deals with God before. Have you done that? I've tried to manipulate God or trick him to doing what I want. I've treated God like he's not all that bright. Maybe one of your first deals sounded something like this. Lord, I really need an A on this test. So if you'll help me make that happen miraculously, I'll study more next time. I'll play less video games. And then a little later, God, I know you haven't heard from me in a while, but I really need to close this deal. If you'll help me out here, I promise to stay in touch better. And I'll make a nice donation to the church. I mean, haven't we all tried to strike a deal with God? God, if, if you just get her to call me back, if you get him to ask me out, if you don't let me be pregnant, if you help us get the money for the visa bill, it's, it's our attempt to pull God into our agenda. God, I want your power to be available to me so I can accomplish what I want to accomplish. That's where these guys are with Jesus. But he's not cooperating. So they have a different plan they're going to try. Whenever we try to cut a deal with God, we're choosing to be extremely naive about who we're dealing with. We're not going to be successful at distracting God or bribing him. We need to be fully aware of who we're dealing with. He knows everything. He sees everything. He's aware of our thoughts. He never says, wow, you don't say. God has never said these words. 
I've never thought of that before. <laughs> we sometimes treat him like he's not quite clued in. We think we can trick him and harness his power for our agenda. In Matthew 22, these Pharisees and Sadducees either lose sight of or probably never had sight of who they're dealing with. In verse 16, notice a couple of things. First, the Pharisees sent in their disciples, like the JV team or the second string. They didn't go themselves for whatever reason. And they sent the Herodians, a group of people who believe Israel should submit to Rome. The Pharisees didn't think Israel should submit to Rome. So on this day, you have two groups coming to trap Jesus with opposite beliefs. What's the saying? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's what's going on here. They're going to hit Jesus up with a question which forces him to take sides, and they think he'll lose credibility with any answer he offers. Verse 16, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. So they're you know, buttering him up a little bit. Verse 17, tell us then what's your opinion. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, these taxes they're talking about are, are a poll tax, a tax every Jewish person, Jewish person had to pay. The Pharisees hated this tax. This tax was a constant reminder that they were not independent. They were not in charge of their own destiny. The question was not about paying taxes to Rome, but about paying taxes to Caesar. Many Jews believe paying taxes to Caesar was a tacit confirmation to Caesar's claim of being divine. Caesar said out loud, I am God. The Pharisees had a religious problem with paying these taxes. The Herodians didn't feel that way at all. Verse 18, Jesus, knowing their evil intent. Jesus knew they were going, where they were going with this. You know, every time you or I try to cut a deal with God, he, he knows what's up. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. This is where the phrase, show me the money, originated. Show me the coin right here in Matthew 22. Do any of you fellows happen to have one of these coins on you? Because if you're carrying one of these coins with Caesar's image on it, you're guilty of what you're accusing me of. You've already bought into the Roman economy. You've already bought into Caesar's system. You're, you're a bunch of hypocrites. It's verse 19. They brought him a denarius and he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. And then he said to them, give what is Caesar's to Caesar's and give to God what is God's and quit playing games when they heard this they were amazed so they left him and went away you know they spent a lot of time working on this show me the coin question they were proud of their plan and in a moment Jesus unraveled the whole deal and they left him and went away probably accusing each other of how dumb that question was to ask in the first place they either forgot or refused to acknowledge who they're dealing with Verse 23, that same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. So the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. They believed that when you die, you're done. And of course, this is always fun to say. That's why they're what? There you go. Isn't that fun? They are in competition with the Pharisees who say there is a resurrection. So they come to Jesus with a rock-solid question to discredit him in front of everyone. Teacher, they said. Moses told us that if a man dies with having children... His brother must marry the widow and have children for him. And here, here's what they're talking about. Let's assume that Mary's my wife, which is easy to do because she is. And let's assume I have several brothers. I don't. I only have one. 
If I die before I have a son to carry on the family name together, she, my wife, Mary, is to marry my oldest brother. If she doesn't have a son by him before he dies, she is to marry the next oldest brother and on down the line. It's called the Leveret marriage. If a brother refuses, you are to go to the elders. If a brother refuses to participate, you're to go to the elders, untie his shoe. This is kind of weird. Spit in his face, curse him, and he will then be known as coming from the family of the unsandaled, which is a terrible criticism to have thrown your way. Not a good thing. What the Sadducees are trying to do is prove how ridiculous the idea of the resurrection is because it's way too complicated to figure out who you're married to. Verse 25, they continue. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died and since had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, they're asking about this when they don't even believe in the resurrection. Whose wife will she be of the seven since all of them were married to her? Now these boys spend a lot of time coming up with this question. And they expect Jesus to wilt under pressure right in front of them. They expected Jesus to say, wow, I've never thought of that before. I guess you're right. There's no way for the resurrection to be real because it gets way too complicated. Verse 29, here's my rendering. You guys think that since you worked up a question you can't answer, then there is no answer. And you have grossly misunderstood the power of God. This is very relevant for us to hear because we think we're pretty smart. We think we know a lot. You may be a person who's pushed back from God's table because you've got some unanswered questions. And maybe you've positioned yourself to believe that if you don't know, nobody knows. And that may be a fairly arrogant position to take. Jesus says to you, you have seriously underestimated the power of God. Verse 30, Jesus says, At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. I'm not sure really what's going on with some of this stuff, but Jesus says in the next life, marriage as we experience it, it may not be part of the deal. Now, if you're not happily married, this may be something you look forward to. If you enjoy your marriage, this may be hard to imagine. Jesus' point seems to be that they have made some assumptions that simply aren't true. And let's not try to get hung up on what we may not grasp. Let's instead see where Jesus is headed. Because what he does next is amazing. He's about to make a case for the resurrection based on a verb tense. Verse 31, but the, about the resurrection of the dead. Have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You can't make this stuff up. I mean, God said these words in verse 32 hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have died. And when God spoke to Moses, did he say, I was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? That's not what he said. He said, I am, as if they're still around. He dismantles their whole strategy to trap him on a simple verb tense, which is amazing. And that's what they realize in verse 32. The crowds heard this and they were astonished at his at his teaching. And they wondered, who is this guy? So the Sadducees, they filed out with defeated looks on their faces, and they too are blaming each other for asking such a dumb question. And they don't get it either. They have no idea who they're up against. And in the same way, Jesus dismantles the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Herodians game playing. 
he dismantles our games too. So the Pharisees and the Herodians failed in round one. The Sadducees failed in round two. Now the Pharisees call in their franchise player. They're down to love. And they've kept this guy on the bench, but it's time to unleash the secret weapon. Verse 34, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, he's not a rookie, he's not a novice, this is D1, bring in the D1 guy, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So the expert in the law says, just pick one, any one of the ten. And I get the idea they're treating these laws like they are their laws, as if they're the ones who wrote them, and they know everything about them. We're not given the chance to see where this expert in the law is going because Jesus unravels his trick so quickly. For any commandment Jesus might pick, the expert in the law probably has a response that will potentially make Jesus look bad. Verse 37, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And, and before the expert has a chance to open his mouth, Jesus goes right into another command, which messes up the trap, evidently, because you're only supposed to pick one. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. They've never thought of this before. You really only need these two laws. The entire law is either about loving God or loving people. And while they're still standing there amazed, Jesus decides to end all the nonsense. Verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they replied quickly, the son of David. Now here's where Jesus is going with this. Remember the score is Jesus 3, opponent 0, maybe the best out of 7 series. So, you know, winning the fourth one may mean game over. The Jews back then believed and looked forward to the Messiah coming, but they didn't know what he'd look like. They didn't really think the Messiah would be divine. And maybe that's why Jesus always threw them off. He claimed to be the son of God, and that didn't fit into their box. Jesus is about to take one of the most familiar psalms in all of the Bible, Psalm 110, a psalm about the coming Messiah, and he's going to ask them a question they've never thought of before. His question not only makes them look a bit foolish, but it also interjects the idea that the Messiah just might be divine. Jesus asked this question, who's the ancestor of the Messiah? And they all know the answer, and they shouted out proudly, David, without hesitation, it's David. And he said to them, how is it then? That David, speaking of the Spirit, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord. If the Messiah is David's great, 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 how many great grandsons, if he's just a physical relative of David, why does David call him my Lord? And while all the Pharisees are looking around, Jesus quotes part of the psalm. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under my feet. If then David calls him Lord, how could he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. These boys were in the presence of God, and they didn't even know it. You don't fake God out. You don't trick him. You don't manipulate him. You don't trap him nor contain him. This was a pivotal moment for these guys. They were beginning to realize who they're dealing with. And when this moment happens for us, when we realize who we're dealing with, things change. We change. We stop trying to make deals with God. We stop pretending he doesn't know stuff. We stop trying to deceive him. You don't do those things in the presence of such a great God. 
In fact, sometimes what happens to us when this moment hits, we become speechless, just like the Pharisees. We dare not say another word. We dare not ask another question. The Pharisees may have had a couple of problems that we may share. Ignorance and arrogance. Jesus identifies the ignorance very clearly. He says to them, you don't know the scripture and you don't know the power of God. With arrogance, you know, they they came into the world the same way I did and the same way you did saying, oh great me, I am the center of the universe. Everything revolves around me, including you, God, so let me tell you what to do. If you are a good God, you wouldn't let this happen or that happen. If you were a loving God, you would fix her and change him. If you were interested in fairness and justice, you would have shown up here and done something different there. God, if you just cooperate with me, then things would go smoothly. And that's flat-out arrogance. Arrogance is why we ignore God for years, and then when we run into trouble or get sick, then suddenly we get all spiritual. It's pretty arrogant. God, you sit over there in the corner, and I'll call you when I need you. Like putting the Almighty God at our disposal. You know, to be honest, some of what goes on in this world is pretty confusing. We all wonder at times when God is going to decide to show up. And that, that thought hits really close, at, close to home in certain moments. And in those moments, I'm hit with this question of sovereignty. Does God really know what's best? And does he always do what's best? Do I have confidence in his greatness? Do I have confidence in his timing and his power to follow through on his plan? I had to deal with this um, at a heart level, in a way I'm sure some of you have experienced and may be experiencing right now. My dad had a stroke which confined him to a wheelchair for a few years before he died. Uh, Before the stroke, he had some dementia, but it progressed rapidly after that happened. And he got to a place where he didn't talk much, you know, and that that was a hard, that was a hard time. This guy who used to design turbine engines, um, can't have a meaningful conversation. And that's, that's tough to watch happen. And it was especially difficult on my mother because she was the primary caregiver. When stuff like this happens, we try to understand. You know, We try to make sense of it all, and we look for answers to our questions. And I had a few days where I wondered why God prolonged his life beyond the days of his ability to communicate. He was uh, unable to perform the activities of daily living, as the healthcare folks call it. And one summer, we were at home, at their home, uh, helping them pack up to move to a new house. And we cleaned out a few leftover boxes in the attic, and Mom found her old high school textbooks, along with her diary. We came back to Lexington that night, and the next day, Mom called and told me that she and Dad had one of the best times they'd had in several months. She was reading from the diary, reminding them of old friends. And they laid in bed and laughed and talked, she said, until 2 in the morning. So it's kind of like old times. Now, if I were God, I would have seen this as a perfect time for Dad to experience a peaceful end to his life. It would have made sense to me. Kind of a storybook ending after a storytelling kind of night. But that was not God's plan. Uh, Dad lived for some time after that, 
in a very challenging condition. And so sometimes I wonder what God's plan is and where the good is in it. But it boils down to a sovereignty issue. Will I remember who I'm dealing with, how great God is, and be at peace with that truth, even when I don't understand, even when I may not agree, even when I think my plan would be better? Back in the early 80s, Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a popular book entitled, Why Do Good Things Happen to Bad People? I'm sure some of you who are a little older uh, read that back then. We would all agree with his words when he writes this. Life is not fair. The wrong people get sick, and the wrong people get robbed, and the wrong people get killed in wars and in accidents. Some people see life's unfairness and decide there is no God. The world is nothing but chaos. And Kirshner comes to this conclusion a little later in the book. He writes this, Are you capable of forgiving and loving God even when you have found out that he is not perfect? Are you capable of forgiving and loving God even when you found out he is not perfect? That's a tough line to swallow. And I would disagree with Kirshner's conclusion that God isn't perfect. Because, because life isn't fair doesn't mean God isn't perfect. But I somewhat understand why he thinks that. He writes this book through his own pain and questions and doubts and confusion surrounding the death of his own son. Again from his book, even when God has let you down and disappointed you by permitting bad luck and sickness and cruelty in his world and permitting some of those things to happen to you, can you learn to love and forgive him despite his limitations? So at this point, Kushner is not writing about a God who's sovereign. The bottom line today isn't to stop praying or asking hard questions. It isn't to stop asking God to be involved in your life and ask him for help when trouble hits. The bottom line is to remember who you're dealing with. God is great. Uh, he's huge. There aren't words. He knows everything. He sees it all. And he's perfect. And his plan is perfect. And we may have some tough questions, and we may not understand all the whys, but in our arrogance and in our ignorance... We should never treat God as being naive, like a little brother asking him if he wants to trade his tiny little dime for my great big nickel. We must avoid attempting to harness God's power for our agenda. So here, here's what this means. Jesus lays it out. He says you have to give to Caesar what's Caesar's and to give to God what's God's. And you know what God's is? You are. And I am. All of us, every one of us, is God's. God, I'm, I'm here to give myself to you and for you, not to see what I can get from you. And he, here's the invitation for you this morning. It's pretty simple. When you don't have answers, trust that he does. When you don't understand, trust his purpose. When things seem out of control, cling to his sovereignty. And always remember who you're dealing with, the great almighty God of all creation, and then love him. Love this God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Let's stand together and sing.